Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. This week, I'm honored to speak with Oz Krakowski, who is a thought leader in AI, in the AI space, including creating alternative language versions of works, crediting actors for their work, and also in policing or potentially using AI to assess deep fakes and and identify them and potentially track them. But it's a very rapidly evolving field and we're honored to have Oz with us today. Hey Oz, thank you so much for joining. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Hey Paul, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to join join this episode. And thanks for the for the opportunity to speak to the audience and, and obviously to you. I am um, an avid, uh, you know, I, I come from a very rich technology background. Started as an engineer, but essentially have a deep passion for entertainment from childhood. And I'm I'm very lucky to have had the opportunity and still have the opportunity of combining the two with AI and specifically a deep dub, which I'm sure we're going to to talk about uh, more later in this episode. Uh, before we get into that, I wanted to just ask you about CrossFit because I did, um, <laughs> I saw that you're an avid CrossFitter. You have records and data dating back 10 years, I think almost. So I'm a avid gym rat. So I go frequently, I, I start my day probably six, seven days a week. And I did CrossFit a couple times. And I remember being so tired, just lying on the floor of the shower and just being exhausted for the entire day after that. So I don't know how you do CrossFit every day and then keep your schedule as a technology and AI entrepreneur executive. You know what they say about CrossFit? It's 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 a culture. Uh, culture. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 And, and 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 it's like what's the you know the the first rule of CrossFit? Just like you know the remember the first rule of Fight Club? You never talk. So first rule of CrossFit is you talk about CrossFit. Okay. We can have an entire blog about CrossFit. I specifically started CrossFit. I remember the day, July fifteenth, two thousand and twelve, and it was about. The time I quit my job at Corporate America, I quit about a month later and decided to become an entrepreneur and start my own business. But it was kind of like, you know, it was all tied together in a way of, I don't know, maybe, you know, uh, 40s or something like that, decided to make a a change in my life. And um, I learned through CrossFit that it can not only change me, but it gives me the ability to change the lives and lifestyle of people around me. Uh, I later on became a coach. I did my, uh, you know, my CrossFit trainer certificate, advanced to, you know, another level. I coached for several years and I enjoy beyond the actual activity itself, which is very efficient. And it's actually, you'd be surprised, it's very, it's perfect for business people because sure, people that go to the gym, especially if you don't have the education, you can spend two hours and, 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 and you got to be very focused on what you do. And CrossFit is, is very efficient. Like you go in, you go out one hour, bam, you have, you know, the perfect formula to get the best out of that hour in the gym, instruct under instruction. The AMRAP. 
Exactly, the MRAP, the, you know, the Tabata. Now you can, listen, when I talk to people, I tell them, you know, the biggest struggle you have is to put your foot in the door. Like the, that's 90% of the effort or the challenge is to get in. Once you made that step in, mm-hmm. all I'm asking you as a coach, at least, all I'm asking you is, you know, let me lead the way, just clear your mind, unwind from, you know, your, from your day job, from everything that happens at home. You're here for an hour. Give me that hour. I'll tell you, you know, exactly what you need to do at every point of the way. And you just do your best, do your best effort. And I think that uh, that feeling that you had of, you know, lying on the floor, like about to pass out, that doesn't leave you for a day. It's not that it goes away. It's just like you learn to appreciate it. Sure. And I remember the first couple workouts, I came back and the first thought that went through my mind was, I worked so hard. I, you know, I, I sweat and I worked out so hard and what, I'm going to go back home and eat a pizza. So, oh, so you, you also have the right diet. So that started my entire transformation because essentially you're one hour in the gym a day, at most one a, a day, and then you have 23 hours to undo it. Uh, I know uh, in a day uh, that if you're me to, to, to even more, right? Because now we are, oh, I, yeah. I worked out so, so, so much. Now I need to eat more. So, you know, that's kind of like a psychology that we all have. So I think that part of it is, it's, and that's what CrossFit gives you is the ability. It's, it's, it's that community that drives you to get back to the, to the gym, to get a very efficient workout in a very structured way and also in a very set amount of time. And then also continue through that and change your entire lifestyle for, you know, for many years to go after that. No, I agree. And, and the episode's not about CrossFit, but I will just say this, like you're pushing yourself, but it's not like adversarial competitive. When I did it, the people I was doing it with, the coaches, the other people, they like they want you to break your records. They want you to do more in the second round than you did in the first round and then in the final round than you did in the first two rounds. And they're like, there's so much support. And I would also say that what the time that you you said you transitioned from being a corporate America to being an entrepreneur, I would also say that it gives you the confidence and, and belief that you can overcome things, right? Because exactly. you don't know how deep the well of endurance and stamina and energy is until you really test it. And then by the way, it gets deeper and deeper every time you push yourself to the limit. So great stuff. And so just to transition really quick, I know you are a thought leader in the space. Can you define for the audience, for people listening, what the space is? And can you just give us a quick background between when you transitioned from, I'm assuming it was Texas Instruments or wherever your most recent corporate job was, and then you, you went and became an entrepreneur. And I know it's constantly evolving, but just tell me, what would you define your space to be? And, and I know you're speaking all the time, but give us an overview of, of the sort of things you're talking about. Absolutely. So first of all, you know, starting from the end, right now, the space I'm operating at with Deep Dub is the entertainment space, or I would say AI for audiovisual content, and specifically around, or the majority of, of our focus is around globalizing and localizing that content into multiple languages or taking content from one language, audiovisual content from one language into multiple languages. The biggest place where we're all familiar with with this type of activity is the entertainment space. You know, you open Netflix and you, you choose a, a Korean series and you can choose a, you know, an English audio track to hear it in English. So this was mm-hmm. basically dubbed. This is where the deep dub comes from. Obviously, we, we kind of, uh, you know, expanded on top of, of this to do dubbing for, you know, beyond just entertainment. And then we can continue talking about that. But essentially, my background and how I got here, 
as I said earlier, I, I, I first I come from a a home where technology was was fostered from early age. You know, I remember myself with you know with computer back when I was in in first grade and third grade, and I'm talking about you know. The early days of the computers you know back to the spectrum and and then the the first uh, you know Apple II plus or 2e and oh wow the, yeah it's it's, it's it, yeah I'm, I'm old and uh, cutting edge <laughs> that's what I'd say <laughs> <laughs> at that time it was cutting edge and I I grew up in Israel the entire family was was kind of like focused about around that my my dad at the time literally went to the UK to bring one of the first IBM computers to Israel. It cost him a fortune. I'm not sure he really needed that, but it was kind of like, you know, we're all geeks in, you know, in, in spirit. Sure. And he, he needed that for his business and he brought it in. And we, we grew up on that type of passion for technology. And essentially when I started my studies at the university, I started in Israel, I started for electronic, uh, electrical engineering, double E. Uh, so I have a bachelor in double E and I, Combine it immediately with, with with computers because I didn't even work in electronics. I, I worked in software, but I started with software that is for electronics. It's called soft embedded software. So, so you write, you code the software that works on the electronics. It kept me pretty much close to the hardware. Mm -hmm. That's how I started my journey. So I'm always a technology oriented in nature. I started with Texas Instruments and then started basically gaining more responsibility in terms of what I can do, what I'm supervising. I was fortunate enough with TI to travel the world. I mean, I, I, I moved into France and uh, spent a year and a half there and then moved into South Korea and lived uh, for two and a half years in Seoul. And all of that before moving to the United States, to Dallas in, in 2007 and, and have been in Dallas since then. Uh, so it's about 16 years now where my kids were born and, uh, you know, we made it our home, decided after four years where we moved over four continents to settle down and uh, <laughs> put down roots. Yeah. <laughs> put down no, roots. I, I like Dallas a lot <laughs> other than Cowboys fans, um, but I got, you know what? I, I can't hate on them as an Eagles fan. I, I will just say for the folks, because you mentioned dubbing and when I started my career before any of this technology, if you made a show in English and someone wanted it in a different language, like you had English actors for the initial production and someone wanted it in French or German or Bengali or whatever, you would have to hire voice actors to re-record the dialogue and it would sort of kind of sync to the video, but you could always tell that it wasn't 100% accurate and there was a cost to doing that. And I'm doing international licensing for content. A lot of the times it's like, we'll provide it to you in this language. If you want rights for other countries, we'll tell you what it will cost and we'll give you a delivery timeline for when we can prepare that language version if we don't have it on hand and then you have to pay. And it's a very slow process. So, you know, with your technology and deep dub, it does seem like a revolutionary that you could create that without having to hire actors to read the, the script or the dialogue in 50 different languages and re-record it. So that's, that's really incredible. Let's take a quick break and come back with how you got into Deep Dub and, and what's revolutionary about Deep Dub. Okay, Oz, just to pick back up on the career trajectory, can you tell us about Deep Dub AI? How long you've been there? Obviously, you're the chief revenue officer. 
what you do for them and why they are so game-changing? I joined uh, DeepDub slightly after the company was founded. The fact of the matter is that the company was actually founded by my two brothers. I'm related to the founders, I would say. and um, That helps. <laughs> kind of, right? You, th you think, right? Um, so uh, yeah. the interesting part here is that when I quit TI back in, in, in 2012, I, I started my own company shortly after. It was in an entirely different space. Unfortunately, after eight years, COVID came in and among other things, scared away investors and, and, and my startup was shutting down just at the time where Fear and Near, my two brothers, basically started DeepDub. So I was the last one to you know turn off the, the, the lights on, on my previous startup. And at the point where it was it was entirely gone, I... I joined DeepDub and I've been here since then. And I'd just like to point out to folks, that is not uncommon, especially if you want to take the risk and be an entrepreneur. Not every business is going to succeed and become like a behemoth, but you still learn a lot. And often when one door closes, another opens shortly thereafter. So I think a lot of it is mindset because if you are concerned about, oh, I don't want to give up the steady security of the corporate paycheck and you know the pros and cons with that stability, some people are afraid, oh, what if I start a business and it doesn't succeed? Well, you know that that happens. It's inevitable. The issue is you got to keep going, find the next thing, don't give up on yourself and pivot. And every opportunity, every time something like that happens, it's a learning experience. And so it's not necessarily failure. It's just a chance to learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is an entire, in itself, an entire, a topic for an entire, you know, podcast, you know, episode. Uh, sure. I'm, you know, I'm happy to, to do as well. But you know, you learn more from failures than you learn from from successes in the end, because you, sure. you need to learn how to embrace your your failures. And one of the things that stuck with me is, you know, what there is a famous short clip by uh, Steve Jobs who says, you know, the difference between those who succeeded and those who failed is that those who succeeded persisted; they kept on going. Absolutely, keep on going. So uh, I totally endorse and love what you said about it. I think that is the way, this is the spirit. And if you have the passion, then go for it. Don't let that pull you down. Uh, I joined DeepDub and um, as, as Chief Revenue, um, uh, kind of transitioned into you know, business development partnerships. Essentially, DeepDub offers, is trying to basically address a very challenging task that you actually mentioned that you're involved with. On one end, it's a task or the task of localizing content is a task that is tedious. It's very complex, convoluted to some extent and expensive as well. And let me also put it in the right frame. In some cases, it's expensive for a reason. It makes total sense that it actually costs what it's supposed to cost. But the fact that it's almost entirely at high cost as it is. And what it does, and I think that's the, that's the essence of, or the passion that we bring in, is the understanding that by enabling it at scale into additional languages, we're pretty much enabling audiences around the world to access that content. Because otherwise, you know, it's very simple. Uh, you know, if you and I are talking in different languages and we don't understand each other, and, and you are able to read a document that actually enables you to get access to a specific skill, let's say, right? Which could be a profession, yeah, right? It could could be literally the, the, the your livelihood could be built on it, on the ability yeah, to I read mean, the document. Yeah, lawyers work with language all, all day. That's what we do. Exactly. But right. I'm, 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 I'm going even more basic, you know, it's like even lawyers, by definition it is, but I'm going even more basic, you know, just the ability to get trained on a specific, like, I don't know, a plumber, reading manuals, 
simple as that, you know, uh, it could be much, much, much simpler than this. And the ability to read or access specific content, it, it can enable or disqualify you from actually being able to access specific activities or profession or, you know, education, definitely entertainment, right? right. You know, I can't watch it if I don't understand it. This is the point where we took off. Do we have a way of increasing that accessibility or increasing access to multiple types of content to other regions of the world? This is the, this is the takeoff point. No, I think it's, it's revolutionary yeah. because imagine, I mean, growing up as a kid, even take a country like India, which sure, 1.4 billion people. My parents spoke Bengali, but most of the movies were Hindi or some other dialect. So we couldn't understand what people were saying, right? So even though it's the same country, there's so many dialects, so many languages. And so imagine if every film and TV show was available in 200 languages through the use of your technology. I mean, that could really revolutionize the way content can be consumed because language would no longer be a barrier. And that's exactly how we started, eliminating or or lowering that barrier uh, in order to be able to go into multiple languages, additional languages, and also not within the same languages, but with different types of content. So can you tell me about the actor royalty program that's implicated in deep dub so deep dub the way we started is focusing on high quality high tier type of content with a very high drive to show our commitment to the industry meaning you know how can we work with the studios how can we work with the actors how can we work with the different entities in the industry including the you know organizations including certifications you know we are TPN certified TPN is the is the MP uh, you know the motion picture associations trusted partner network certification that basically gives you uh, the ability to access pre-release material so in terms of security information security which is very important you know when you work with big studios and all of this you know we're GDPR certified, meaning, you know, where we, we really care about privacy. All of this got, comes to show that we came already from the first step in a mode of operation of we want to work with the industry rather than disrupt the industry in a way that, you know, uh, let's just, I'll just throw at you technology and, you know, you figure out what to do with it uh, or not. Rather than doing this, let's see if we can bring that technology in a way that benefits you. Okay, and we can talk about this in our final segment, but I want to I want to talk about AI generally and some of the concerns. And I think what you're presenting is rather than do this as maybe like a contrarian actor or something that's not partnering with the established content producers, the regulatory and the industry regulatory organizations, like let's work with them and bring our technology with their consent and cooperation, right? And so, you know, Deep Dub, I know it has contracts with a lot of the big studios and producers to basically grow the use of their tool, but it's doing it in a way that's collaborative as opposed to, hey, let's like shoot first, ask questions later. That's exactly the point. And the voice actors royalty program is exactly a part of that type of approach where we are specifically addressing professional voice actors. So it's not you and I, it's professional voice actors uh, or offering them an opportunity to get compensated basically for the use of their voice okay. in a way that is, you know, in line with what they would do if they were you know, not using AI. That basically gives them also the opportunity now to do it, you know, to do it in a legal way, to do it with consent, to do it with them understanding exactly what they do, to do it in a way that we guarantee that, you know, we're not training on their voice. You know, it's only going to be used for the uh, projects they, you know, they 
they approve, etc. So, so does that mean you have the the actors saying something like common words, and you can piece that together in different languages, or are you using your AI to take recordings of them and then create new transcripts? We basically ask them to record a, a specific transcript, or you know, record some voice data. They give us that data. We create a model that is only that is not based on other materials. That is based on the on the data that they provided, and using that model, we are basically we're creating a voice style. You can say, all right, it's a voice style that will use their their likeness, and then when we have a producer that is using our platform they can go and choose to use that specific voice. And if they use that specific voice in a project, the voice actor, who's the owner of that voice, or that voice style, or that likeness, will get compensated for that, for that, uh, for that use. That's great. So, I mean, that is, generally think about it. So that's, you're using AI, you're giving the actor consent and approval over the use of their likeness, but also using that same data to meet customers' needs in a way that helps the customer save some cost, time, and expense, and also allows the actor to get compensated. So it really is a win-win-win. That's great. Let's let's take a quick break and come back with the AI industry more generally, because I'm very curious about your thoughts. So, Oz, it seems like DeepDub has maybe found the special sauce, the way to leverage AI in a way that doesn't ruffle feathers with talent and also is collaborative with the studios. I mean, AI is just really taken off, right? In for better or for worse, in technology and the way we create content, the way we automate. And I think there's a couple critical concerns that most people have. I'd say I'd structure them around transparency and how to label something that was created via AI authenticity, which is sort of the flip side of that transparency point. When something is created, how do we know? Consent slash permission. You know, we talked about in, in episode 238, the Authors Guild is suing OpenAI because they're claiming that the books written by these famous authors were used to train OpenAI's LLMs without consent or any licensing structure. And then ownership, and that is whether something is created you know, solely or majority by an algorithm, can that be owned via copyright patent the way our laws are currently drafted and interpreted? If it's solely made by an algorithm, it's not eligible for copyright, and I, I believe it's not eligible for patent as well, but the law is, is constantly changing. So as you said in, with DeepDub, you're kind of addressing the issue by giving actors, ongoing compensation and consent rights, and making sure that the data is solely what they provide. But not every one of the AI companies that exist does that, follows those same moral code or principles or whatever. So what do you think the solution is if a company isn't necessarily as principled as DeepDub? I think that's a great question. And I, I would say that if you're a production company or a content owner or a voice actor, you should choose carefully who you work with. It's very simple. I think from that perspective, in the end, there are the technologies out there and many people can make different use of it. The way our approach is, we would like to be in control of the technology, but give you access to the use cases rather than the ability to start doing all the, you know, all the deep fakes that can be abused, right? We've seen those in the past couple of years. Rather than having that give you access to the to the outcome where we are in control of it, 
and build a reputation and a brand around you know the ability to basically do this in an ethical way as you are interacting with the company on the other end definitely you know make sure that you're you're getting in, in bed with with the right folks so so this I think comes down to a little bit of trust but then can you build your platform your back end in a manner that allows you the actors to see okay these are the projects that I've been used in or perhaps you know maybe there's a scenario where it's like you've been requested to have your voice used in this movie but an actor can say no I decline or the actor can say yes blah 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 and then they get paid or what if someone were to say hey I don't like the way that sounds anymore and I'm not getting any any more recording work everyone's going to you would they be able to terminate that grant of rights absolutely yes that's part of it they own the ability to have uh, you know certain level of control I mean what's done is done what is not done doesn't need, can can be terminated uh, and, and think of it in, in fact the way we approach this specifically the you know the royalty program is just the way dubbing is done today when you're when you do dubbing today as a voice actor you you basically contribute your voice to create a new dialogue. You don't give away your voice, you just give away the dialogue right. and and once mm-hmm. you recorded the dialogue and your customer received the dialogue, it's the dialogue itself is no longer yours, but the voice your voice stays stays yours right. So it's the results and proceeds of your recording that can be owned and and contributed to the the either the studio or the dubbing house or potentially you, but not the underlying. Not your voice, just the recording exactly there's just as it's fixed into a medium I exactly that. so and, and and your voice says yours, and it's the same here in a way that the only difference is that we create a voice model that's based on your voice, but the minute you decide to you don't want us to continue doing that, you know we delete that. It's entirely isolated from everything else we do. We don't train on that on that voice samples, voice data. Our technology is not built on it. It just enables the creation of it and the use of it. But other than that, once you decide you don't like to do that anymore, you know it's very simple to delete that voice and it's done. Let's say it was something like better called Paul. And I have you know some family in India. Some family in Australia, my family in India, some of them don't speak English. Could you turn Better Call Paul into like a Bengali language podcast? And if so, would, would it be my voice or would you hire a Bengali actor and then have them create the a vo- Bengali voice actor and have their voice be the substance of Better Call Paul in Bengali? The answer is actually either of the two. And it's your choice as the content owner. We could use your voice because in your in this case it's the case that you brought up on the table is is a simple one I would say because you own the content and you also own the performance and the voice because it is you so you could say listen okay. I want my voice to be in the target language in all the target languages and and you would give your voice because that's what you'd like to to do so you will give the consent to use your voice even we in would, languages that I don't speak even in languages that you don't speak correct and oh and, wow. Yeah, and it would be your voice and of course we would require your consent I'll give you a more, a, a more complex situation where we have a content owner that would like to use the actors the original actors voices and doesn't have consent and if they don't have consent with we, we tell them no we're not gonna do it straight straight and simple okay so it's like you hire for example let's say studio a hires actors makes a movie releases it in America and And then they want to release it 
let's say on streaming all around the world, but they don't have the ability to use the original act. They don't have the, in their agreements, the ability to use the original actor's voice in different languages. You would say, Hey, we can't use the original actors. We can do this with other voice actors, but we can't use the original actors unless you separately go get the consent. Correct. And then what we will do, is we will say, listen, I cannot use the original actors. I have voices from the voice actor, you know, for the voice actor royalty program, for example, where I can use okay. those voices. These voice actors will get compensated for these voices. That's so incredible. So let me ask you, where do you think this all heads? Do you believe in like free market, like the companies, the AI companies that in addition to having a good product that's reliable and efficient and accurate, the companies that have strong ethical principles and guidelines will do better overall just based on the market? Or do you think that governments should be getting involved in legislating this? It's a, it's a, a big and a very good question. First of all, personally, I be, I'm more of a believer in, 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 uh, in, in open markets and, and, and competition, but I do believe in trust and, and code of ethics in intent. I will also add that I think that the law today is still very infant. The way it actually looks at AI, uh, you know, we had the strike, the strike came to a resolution. There are definitely specific items that are, uh, you know, relevant for the, the way AI is used with, with actors, with writers. But I think a lot of it is kind of, it's, it, we're still in a, a trial and error phase. You know, there's like, let's give it a baseline. And they're, they literally say, you know, we started somewhere in two years or two, three years, it's going to open. We're going to, you know, measure our steps and, 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 and maybe, and, and adjust, not maybe, adjust accordingly. And I would say this, because, and I agree, law is always, it's reactive, right? In the sense that it's a framework, it's principles. There are certain things that we'd like to say, are okay, are permissible, are would require approval or are restricted. But ultimately, you know, what you're doing is you're balancing scales, cost benefit. And over time you get smarter about what the true costs are and what the true benefits are. So sometimes we have to let these things, new technologies, for example, new rights, whatever they are, evolve. Right. And so I think the key is to have transparency and insight and good data so that people can be objective about how to make these decisions. And if we say, hey, we got it wrong. We, you know, we said that you didn't need permission to do X, Y, and Z. And after 10 years, that's created a lot of problems. And now we, you know, people don't feel like they have ownership over their own voices. Let's let's change the law. So we can always revisit the law because it's evolving. But in terms of establishing a framework for how a business should work or how a new technology should be uh, implemented, I think that's very much trial and error, learn by doing. And then, you know, as you get smarter, you create boundaries and guidelines. And I'll add to this that especially with technology that is advancing so fast. AI, we've seen in 2023 is, is a transformational year for AI with the, you know, with, with open AI, which had GPD just started kind of like just before 2023, about a year ago. And, and then what happens throughout the year literally transformed so many industries. And we're just, you know, it's just the tip of the, of the iceberg, uh, pretty much. Uh, so, you know, it, the, the, it's incredible. So the process is so fast. And there is no way that the law can actually react so fast. We see that. So we gonna, it's going to be a gradual uh, learning curve. Um, and, and I think, again, from our perspective, the way to, to address it is, you know, 
we we are not especially as a, you know as a small company we're not going to invent new laws or go against against existing laws we're trying to operate within the the existing framework um where it's a gray you know where we come to to uh, um, we go into discussions with our customers and and come to an agreement and adjust accordingly like right now the strike is done we can adjust accordingly uh you know based on on, on these agreements and 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 keep going forward operating the gray area that's what we do um <laughs> oz thank you so much for for anyone listening where can they find you are you active on social linkedin x what's your um platform of choice and what's your handle best way to reach out to me is all over linkedin you can find me oz krakowski um look out for me there i'm uh, attending many you know many conferences like i said like you said like you said earlier I, I was talking last week at the ottx i'll be talking again at the at real screen at the end of january uh and happy to engage in additional discussions if anyone is interested to you know pick my brain on AI and uh, ethical use of it in entertainment or otherwise thank you so much Oz this was very educational for me I think deep dub it seems like it's in the perfect spot in that it's in an area that addresses a high cost inefficiency in the business in a way that allows actors and studios to both benefit from the value that you're creating. Uh, in addition to your company. And thank you so much for joining. Everyone, that's our show for this week. Thank you for listening to Better Call Paul. Please like, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much, Oz. Thank you. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer, Lisa Sanders.